0: They said, hey, why don't you just become king? And according to legend, you know, Washington says, no way. He, he flatly rejects that. And that attitude has, has sort of been brought into our government and really part of our culture now. So you think about these days the idea of a, of a king here. We just sort of rail against that. But what's funny is we are so anti-king in America with our democratic government, but yet so many Americans just love the royal family of, of England. There are people in here, I know, that stay up at 3 in the morning our time to watch the weddings or the parades, see Kate Middleton walk out of a hospital three hours after having a baby, looking like a supermodel, however that happens, and they're just so, so caught up in it. It's like, we would never have one here, but we love the royal family. Well, we certainly don't want a king here. But if you think about the people of God, and you go back in time to the Old Testament, they longed for a king. If you're familiar with 1 Samuel 8 and that sort of area in the scripture, they longed for a king. But what they found was, once they finally got a king, he really didn't live up to the expectations that they had. In fact, far from it. He really wasn't um, as good as they hoped that they would be. They had good kings. They had bad kings. They had some awful kings. And the Davidic dynasty of kings, what comes from David and his his lineage, was actually first foretold back in Genesis chapter 49, where we're going to be today. And here in the middle of this touching scene where you've got a dying father blessing his sons, there's a short, easily overlooked reference to a coming ruler. But as the rulers come, as you follow the story through the Old Testament... The failures and flaws of Israel's king really showed the people that what they needed was not another king. So, oh, the next guy will be better. No, what they needed was a better king. They needed a greater king, one who would rule perfectly and eternally. And our Advent series is called Pictures of the Promised One. So we're looking in the Old Testament and specifically in the what's called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible at passages that are probably not your typical christmas type verses, but they are rich images of this Messiah who will come at some point down the road to rescue his people, to rule over them, to provide for them. They're these great pictures of a promised one. And today what we find in Genesis 49 is that this promised one, this person coming in the future, is going to be the Lion King. From the tribe of judah okay now i'm not going to hold up a baby and say something you know but he's going to be the lion king this kingly fierce ruler from the tribe of judah and we'll see the prophecy first here in genesis 49 and we're going to fast forward and look at how it is fulfilled um, partially by flawed leaders and then how it receives its ultimate fulfillment in jesus okay and so our main idea today what i hope to show you is the promised Messiah, is the greater king, the perfect and powerful lion of Judah. So let's stand together. I want to read just a few verses here from Genesis 49, then I'll pray for us and we can get started. So Genesis 49, if you're there, say word. Uh, That was weak. If you're there, say word. Fantastic. Okay, verse 8, here's what the word of the Lord says. Judah... and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your scriptures, and we ask in this moment that you would teach us, that you would give us wisdom to understand, and that you would help us to see these connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, these connections between prophecy and fulfillment in Jesus. And we ask that you would stir our hearts for our Savior and his return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with the prophecy of a coming king. This coming king. This is from Genesis 49. And just so that we're on the same page, I want to sort of set the context here of what's going on. Genesis 49 is right at the tail end of what we call the Joseph narrative. This is Genesis 37 through 50, a huge chunk of the book all about Joseph. His sort of meteoric rise, well actually sort of a terrible fall at the beginning, then a meteoric rise, and all is well at the end of Genesis. And Jacob, who is Joseph's father, is wrapping up his affairs because he's sick, probably knows he's going to die soon. And so he begins to ask all of his sons to come to him because he wants to give them a blessing, sort of the final parting words to his sons. And these blessings are they're more than just sort of a hopeful word. Yeah, this isn't like the sons come to him and, they, and he's saying, boy, I hope you turn into something good. You know? Boy, I hope you grow out of that phase you're in. No, it's, it's more than just a hopeful uh, word for each son. These blessings are actually prophetic in nature. They, they speak to what will come. And so <clears throat> if you dig into the commentaries, what people tend to think is that Joseph is demonstrating, in some sense, the same sort of gift that, uh, or Jacob is, that Joseph does later. Remember Joseph is known for interpreting dreams, this divinely given ability to see the spiritual truth that others can't see. Well, the idea here is that Jacob is doing the same. God has given him a gift, a prophetic gift, to speak a blessing over his sons that is prophetic of what will become not of them, but of the tribes that come from them. So you have each of the 12 sons who then turn into 12 tribes. Of people who come from them. So as we approach these verses, we need to look at them with a sense of expectation and anticipation, just like the Israelites did. They see a verse like this and and then they're on the lookout. Where is God at work? When is this going to be fulfilled? Is it now? Is this guy? Is this happening? There's a sense of expectation and a desire for fulfillment. Now what I've done for us is, there's a lot in these verses, well beyond what we have time for, But what I've tried to do is pull from these verses three characteristics of this coming king. There are three things that we can take from this passage that are descriptions of what this coming king is going to be like. And what's good about it is we can then take those characteristics and we can apply them in the second point to these earthly kings. And then we can ultimately apply them to Jesus to see how he perfectly fulfills them. The earthly kings partially do, and they're prophesied here. So let me give you each of these uh, briefly. This first characteristic of this coming king, the king will possess power. Look at verse 8. It says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This is the picture of like you're on top and you've just crushed them. You've subdued them. They're they're tapping out. Your power is too much. They are submitting to the victor. Look at verse 9. It says, he stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? I don't know if you've ever encountered a lion, but if you've seen one, pretty fierce, pretty giant, pretty deadly. Uh, They are fierce warriors. They stalk their prey and overtake them. Proverbs 30, verse 30, says that the lion is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. So get the the image here of this coming king. He's going to have great power unmatched by anybody else. He's going to be as fierce as a lion. He's not going to back down from anybody. He's not going to just, you know, this isn't just like a cat, like a little tabby. This is a a warrior. This is the lion king. He will subdue his enemies. Okay, second characteristic, we're told that this king is going to rule over all peoples. Look at verse 10. says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Jacob says, Judah, from you, from your line, there's going to become this, this ruler who is going to be over the peoples? The people are going to submit to him. And his rule ultimately would extend to all peoples, not just the Israelites. Everybody's going to bow to this lion king who rules over them. He would be a mighty warrior. And then thirdly, this king will reign forever. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. If you're not familiar with what a scepter is, you may not have one at home. Uh, But if you watch the royal wedding stuff or things in England, you may see, or different monarchs around the world, a scepter is sort of a, a stick. It's like gold, maybe some jewels on it, maybe like a big orb at the top. And it's a symbol for the monarchy. So whereas kings and queens just sort of come and go, the monarchy remains. That symbol of the monarchy remains. And to say that the scepter shall not depart means that Judah's lineage is always going to rule. So Jacob says to Judah, from your line, there's going to be a ruler. The royal kingship of the people is never going to leave your family. This prophecy indicates that the monarchy that emerges in Israel will reign forever. The kings of Judah will never leave the throne. So this coming king that, Judah, that Jacob is prophesying through the people of Judah is unlike earthly kings. He's not temporary. He is not limited in his his strength. He's not limited in his rule or his reign. But he is going to reign forever. The scepter will not depart from him. He will be powerful and fierce like a lion. All will bow to him in submission as the people give obedience to him. He would be, ultimately, this lion of Judah. And so this prophecy then leads to this expectation that The people are longing for. When is this person going to come? When is this ruler going to come? Well, uh, as we move forward through the history of Israel, we find that we don't have him immediately. And instead, we have a series of one after another of flawed kings. That's my second point this morning is a flawed king. Okay, Jacob's prophetic reference to this future king would take... Centuries to fulfill, even in its partial sins. And if you, like I said earlier, if you look at 1 Samuel, the people begin to get restless and they want a king. Now, I I tend to be sort of the glass half full person. You know, maybe they had a sense of, hey, we're trying to fulfill this prophecy. I have a feeling it's more just sort of sinful rebellion against the people. But they begin to reject God's leadership through the prophet Samuel and they go to him in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and they say, hey, Samuel. You're old, we're tired of you, we want a king. And do you remember why they wanted a king, anybody? Because everybody else has a king. Come on, Samuel, everybody has a king. We want one too. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And what an indictment on the people of God. God was supposed to be their king. He was their king. They say, hey, we want a king. No, actually, you want a different king. You have one and you're usurping him. They wanted to be like the other nations, an indictment on them. And if you read on through 1 Samuel 8, Samuel actually warns them. Well, first he indicts them and says, you know, this is terrible. God is your king. And then he actually warns them and says, okay, if you get a king, he's going to take your land, he's going to take your women, he's going to take your money, he's going to put you into the army, and then ultimately you're going to cry out and God won't hear you. Now, I like to think if I were there, I might have heeded that that warning. But the people of Israel don't. They say, it's fine, we want a king. And so what do they get? They get Saul. They get Saul, who's supposed to be this great king they've waited for. We finally have one. We're like everybody else. But how well does Saul do? Not very. Saul ultimately disobeys the Lord. First Samuel 15, ultimately God rejects him as king. And then he appoints David. Now, if there were ever a king where it was like, this is the guy we've been waiting for, David is that guy. He had power. He had authority. I mean, he was like a man's man. He was a a mighty warrior proven in battle. He had riches and fame. Remember, people used to sing about him. Saul had thousands, but David has his ten thousands. I mean, this is the guy. If anybody was the Lion of Judah that we've been waiting centuries for, it would be David. But was he the Lion of Judah? Was he this amazing king that we've waited for? Well, if you take those three characteristics from Genesis 49 and you apply them to David, what you find is he falls short, right? The king is supposed to possess power. David had power. We're off to a good start, but it's limited. Even at his strongest, in 2 Samuel, he's Uh, he's king, and then a son decides to usurp him and run off and and make himself a rival king, David ends up having to flee Jerusalem. So even at his high point, it's just, I'm the king of Jerusalem, and yet now I'm having to flee because my son's causing problems. He has power, but it's limited. Okay, number two, the king is supposed to rule over all people. Well, David ruled over some people. He had a eh, large-ish nation, but he didn't rule the world didn't rule over all nations. In the grand scheme of of geography, Israel was pretty small, pretty insignificant. And then thirdly, the king is supposed to reign forever. David reigned for quite a while, but ultimately his reign ended. Death put an end to his reign, and every descendant after him. So we had waited for this king to come, and Seems like David is the one. He's going to be the guy who fixes everything. He's going to be the guy who leads us, and we're going to be wonderful. But he wasn't quite that. You ever have something that you know it's good, and it's perfectly fine, but you just want something better? Ladies, don't look at your husbands. right? You got something, whatever it is, it's your car, it's your house, it's your job, and you're like, it's fine, it's good, but I just want something better. I'm that way with pickleball stuff. Again, I don't talk about pickleball often, but when I do, I try to make it applicable here. Um, I just got a new pickleball paddle. Love it. It's revolutionized my game overnight. And and no, it really actually it has changed it quite a bit. But the paddle I was using before, was it terrible? No. It was great. Plenty of people use it. It was wonderful. But I just, there was something stirring in me. I wanted something better. I think all of us have that. We have something that's good, and we've waited for it. Maybe we, we saved up for it. We finally got it, and we're just like, yes, I have it. And then it's like, is there something else out there? Like, you know, it's a new piece of technology that five minutes later is out of, like, out of fashion. It's been replaced by something better. David was this great king in many ways, but he wasn't the greatest, right? David is guilty of serious sin. Bathsheba, adultery murder of uriah that's her wife all of his great qualities no matter how great he was how handsome how powerful how smart all of them fell short of perfection and in the grand scheme of eternity his reign a blip on the radar just up and gone scripture talks about how like the the grass withers and fades you sprout for a little bit and you're gone life is like a, a vapor a mist same is true with David. What about his descendants? Do they get better after him? No, definitely not. Uh, Could one of them be the Lion of Judah? I I think not. He had descendants who flat out rejected the Lord. He had descendants who got caught up in idolatry. Even the best ones were flawed and short-lived. And I think there's a point of application here for us, and I'm always Always amazed at the providence of God about how certain passages end up being preached at certain times in life, and you know we've just finished the election season. In theory, seems like it goes on all the time now, but in theory, we've just had midterms, and there's this this stir of sort of panic in one part and unfounded hope in the other part. It's either panic because everything is crumbling and the world is ending, or a really Overzealous hope of, if we get that guy in power, or if we get that party in power, boy, we can take it back. Everything's going to be better. We can change everything. It'll be wonderful. We will just, it'll just be a great country. There's a danger here of putting our hope in these political parties or these political leaders, because at best they get a few years, and ultimately they probably won't accomplish that much, right? Right? Uh, They will fall short of our expectations. They won't do what they promised to do on the campaign trail. And they'll probably end up making compromises that we view as traitorous. How could you do that? How could you partner with those people? And so when we put our hope and our trust and our faith, really, in parties or people, and we say, if we can just get that guy, everything will be fine. Well, we need to take a lesson here from the story of David. Anybody we get... No matter how much we've waited for them, no matter how much we think that they're the person to take us to new levels, they're flawed, right? And as good as they are, they're going to be ruling over flawed people, broken people in a broken world. We can't expect this amazing revolution from flawed leaders. You see it in the story of David and all the descendants who came after him. Even the best ones were short-lived, they were flawed, they had problems. The story of David and his descendants should cause us to put our hope in a greater king. It's not, our hope is not in some new leader. If we can just get this person or that person, or if we can just take the house or the senate, we can do this, everything will be fine. No, we need someone better than that. We need a greater king. Not some earthly figure like a political leader, but a heavenly figure. We need Jesus, the true lion of Judah. And that brings us to our third point, a greater king. So we have... A coming king, the prophecy, we have a flawed king, sort of partial fulfillment, and then we have a greater king, Jesus and the ultimate fulfillment. What happens to Judah ultimately in the Old Testament? Well, they sin, they disobey the Lord, and eventually God punishes them with exile in Babylon. The monarchy effectively is gone. By the time of the New Testament, Israel is under Roman occupation, Right, they've got a puppet king, a puppet ruler, Herod the Great. If you're an Israelite and you're sort of hanging out in the first century, you're thinking, where's the prophecy? Where is this Lion of Judah? We thought it might be David. Nope, it wasn't him. We thought it might be Solomon. No, nope, it wasn't him. We had all these great kings that we thought would lead us to victory, but all of them passed. Did we misunderstand the, the prophecy? Did we misinterpret? Well, no. It's just the prophecy pointed to someone better than all those kings, pointed to someone who was better than all the the greatest earthly kings we could have. And the shortcomings of David and his sons actually was no surprise to God. If you look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is God making a covenant with David. He actually acknowledges that David and his sons are going to sin, but then tells them that there's going to be someone after them. Let me read for you Second Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I think there's pictures here of Solomon who builds the temple, but also sort of future pictures, right? A kingdom that will be established Forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So these sons who come after you, they're going to sin. I'm going to discipline them. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever Does it sound oddly familiar to Genesis 49? A scepter shall not depart from your house. Throughout the failings of David and his sons, and then through the Babylonian captivity, the people of God looked for this fulfillment of the prophecy. They looked for a greater king to come along. And then finally, this greater king emerges in the most unlikely of scenarios. A young virgin from a small country town ends up pregnant with a child, not from her fiancé. It's not the great makings of a soap opera? But this is real life, where the consequences could be divorce at best or even stoning at worst. But this is no happenstance. This is not the result of sin on the part of Mary. <clears throat> this is the plan of God being fulfilled. This is Isaiah 9 happening. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is Isaiah 9 happening. Along comes Jesus. Jesus who will rule over the throne of David and over his kingdom, not temporarily, not till he's voted out, not till he dies, but forever. He'll uphold it, to establish it, and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. After centuries of waiting and after many flawed kings, finally the Lion of Judah has come, and he's Jesus. Jesus is the greater king, the Lion of Judah, the true ruler of an eternal kingdom. That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, and he describes him as the one who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. He's no puppet king. He's no regular king like everybody else. He's the king of kings. And if you apply those three characteristics, Jesus fulfills them perfectly. Right? Number one, the king possesses power. Who has more power than Jesus? Paul says in Colossians, by him everything was made. What, what greater power is there than upholding the universe? You think your job's hard? Try upholding the universe. That's power. The king is going to rule over all people. Again, Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is going to rule over all people. And thirdly, the king reigns forever. Jesus will reign not just for four years, not just for eight years, but forever. Why? Because he is forever. The book of Revelation has great, great passages on this. Jesus even says in Revelation 1, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, right? I'm the one who was and who is to come. Revelation 5, this is John's vision about the scroll, and there's nobody to open it, and so John's very sad, and then it says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And then later in, verse, in chapter 5, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The testimony of Scripture is clear. The promised Messiah, Jesus, is the greater King. He's the greater King that we've longed for, that the people of Israel had longed for. He's the perfect and powerful Lion of Judah. And as the world seems to sort of crumble around us, even our country seems to decline around us, we may be tempted to look to earthly leaders. Again, if I could just get that guy, if we can just get that party. But every leader we're gonna find is flawed and their reign is short. And they'll rule over a broken world and ultimately probably won't make it that much better. What we need is a greater king. We need a king who rules a kingdom not of this world. We need a king who rules over an unending kingdom. We need a king of, who's, uh, of a kingdom where we can be citizens of that kingdom. We need a king who loves and rules justly. A king who actually rules for the betterment of his people. What a shock that would be in our world king who is unending. Don't put your hope in a president or a political party. We need someone better. Because Jesus, this image of the the fierce lion conquering and putting the hand on the neck. Jesus didn't conquer Rome. He didn't conquer the Greeks. He didn't conquer some nation. He conquered sin and death for you and for me. He conquered our greatest enemy. He didn't conquer China or Russia. He conquered sin and death. That which was our greatest enemy, he has conquered. He's paid our sin debt, and he's raised us to new life through his mighty power. That's the king we need. And in this Advent season, that's the king that we long to see return. We long to see the new world that Jesus is going to make when he comes back. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to a new world, a better world, where Jesus will come and reign in justice, where all the wrongs are made right, all the evil is is gone, everything is made new, and we get to live with a good and perfect king in a perfect world with our now perfect bodies, man, how amazing that will be. John Calvin said, In the end, let each of us, when he hears that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, be roused by the thought to entertain the hope of a better life. And to expect that as it is now protected by the hand of Christ, so it will be fully realized in a future life. He right? so look, let's, let's hope for a better life. And our confidence is that better life is now held by Christ, and we will experience it one day. The Advent season, as we've, I'm sure, said many times, isn't just about remembering what it was like to wait for Jesus' first coming. It is that, but it's also for us on this side of the cross to long and wait for his second coming, his second advent. We're just like the Israelites now, hoping and waiting for our Messiah to come. Our Messiah, this Lion of Judah, the better David. And that's why we sing these lyrics. We've done it a few times lately. Christ, the true and better David, lowly shepherd, mighty king. He, the champion in the battle, where, O oh, death, is now thy sting? In our place he bled and conquered. Crown him Lord of majesty. His shall be the throne forever, and we shall heir his people be. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your scriptures, grateful for these truths, and I pray, God, that our hearts would be stirred today to long for the return of Jesus to not put our hope, our trust in leaders of this world to make things better, but to realize we live in a sinful world and so we long for the day when everything will be made new. May you be honored and glorified as we look to the return of your son in whose name we pray, amen.